Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Yes, we finally made it, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. A reminder that uh, you can also get us on those home devices like Alexa and Google Home. All you have to do is say... Play Three Martini Lunch podcast, and it will just do that. Also, if you listen on iTunes, please leave us a nice review. That is always a great help to us. Jim, let's start with our good martini here. And Bernie Sanders doesn't spend a lot of time in the good martini. If he does, it's usually because he's actually being honest about how much government he wants. Today, it's just fun to watch Bernie Sanders be a hypocrite. Let's go to the pages of the Washington Post. Unionized campaign organizers working for Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential effort are battling with its management, arguing that the compensation and treatment they are receiving does not meet the standards Sanders espouses in his rhetoric, according to internal communications. Campaign field hires have demanded an annual salary they say would be equivalent to a $15 an hour wage, which Sanders for years has said should be the federal minimum. The organizers and other employees supporting them have invoked the senator's words and principles in making their case to campaign manager Fayez Shakir, the documents reviewed by the Washington Post show. Sanders has made standing up for workers a central theme of his presidential campaigns, this year marching with McDonald's employees, seeking higher wages, pressing Walmart shareholders to pay workers more, and on and on. Uh, Apparently there was uh, an effort earlier this year to resolve this dispute. On May 17th, Shakir convened an all-staff meeting during which he recommended raising the pay for field organizers to $42,000 and changing the work week specifications. The union draft indicated he was seeking to extend the work week to six days, however. So there was a swift vote and the union rejected the offer. So, Jim, that's a lot of background to say that basically Bernie Sanders keeps talking about how the Republicans and other people won't go to $15 an hour. Turns out he could do this very easily, but won't. Hang on one. Just just pause a moment. Just smell that. Just just get get to take a good deep whiff. Oh, Greg, that's good opposition research dumping right there. Oh man, that that's that's the good stuff. That's that's with Parmesan cheese on it when you get opposition research dumped on somebody like this. I don't know if this was Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or uh, somebody knew what they were doing with that one. I suppose we could now say an elite DC insider with three houses is refusing to pay his staffers $15 an hour. Am I, am I understanding this correctly? <laughs> you know, what's worth putting this in context of is that look, for a long time, there were quite a few Democratic members of Congress who were saying it was important that everyone deserved to be paid a, a living wage and nothing less than $15 an hour would do who had unpaid interns. Now we could argue about whether interns need a living wage, but Having done some unpaid internships and then having done some paid internships way back in the Mesozoic era, that always struck me as not paying your intern anything always struck me as a little bit unjust. Yes, you're getting valuable experience, and that's the thing. A lot of places love to do the, oh, we'll give you work experience, and if your college is willing to sign on, you can get college credit for it or something. If somebody's doing some work for you, even if it's just making coffee or shuffling papers or something like that, you probably should be paying them something. In the end, what what most liberals mean is that people wealthier than me should be paying their workers at least $15 an hour. I myself have perfectly good reasons to not uh, pay someone $15 an hour. It's totally different when I do it. Yes, hypocrisy runs wild in Washington, so we shouting be shocked. But when it's such a central theme of your campaign and you basically want to push towards a socialist system where, guess what, everybody makes the same thing and that's what you think they should make, 
it's good for people to know that before they uh, actually vote. So I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to live this one down, and it's coming right before the debate, so this could also be fun. Well, speaking of the next debate, and actually our last two will deal with the debate in some ways, certainly with the 2020 campaign, Jim, we finally learned this guy's name, or at least I think we're on the verge of learning this guy's name, and now his staffers want him to get out of the race. John Delaney, the former congressman from Maryland, has literally been running for president since, I believe, the mid to late spring of 2017. So that's over two years already, and we still got well over a year to go till the actual general election. But now his team thinks it's time to pretty much wrap this thing up. This is from Axios. On July 9th, John Delaney's senior team sat him down and told him to drop out of the presidential race by mid-August, according to three sources close to the campaign. He's been running for president for 721 days. He's spent nearly $19 million as a 2020 candidate since 2017. He's loaned over $11 million of his own money to his campaign this year. He's visited all of Iowa's 99 counties already, including at least 14 stops in Carroll County alone, and it's all been for nothing. Those close to him think there's no chance he makes the September debates, which have a harder qualification threshold than the first two. They thought he flopped in the first debate in Miami. They say he's got a different position on economic and racial issues just about every day. Others say he's not spending enough. Others say what he has spent hasn't resulted in anything. They say his wife is too involved in the campaign, even though she's not officially a campaign official. And so the Delaney campaign has responded by saying the report is incorrect. No one's ever asked him to drop out. He has no plans to drop out. And by the way, he's only spent $9 million. I guess the only thing anybody can agree on, Jim, is that he's going nowhere in this race, or at least he's gone nowhere so far. I think the strongest argument against John Delaney dropping out, Greg, is that if he dropped out, how many people would notice? (laughs) So look, but what makes this our sort of bad martini is that look, you know, you and I have been making fun of John Delaney, oh, since spring of 2017, perhaps. Um, but you know, we finally got to see him on the debate stage, and well, it's not like you and I agreed with a lot that he said. I do think, first of all, he did come across as the guy who knows how to nail Al Capone on tax evasion because he actually knows the law compared to everybody else who's got these you know delusions of grandeur. What would make me kind of sit up in my chair is when he said, you know, he asked a question early on, they're debating healthcare, and he says, why are we trying to take away health insurance for people who are happy with it? And that's a really good question to pose <laughs> at a Democratic debate. You could kind of tell that not too many of the other Democratic candidates had spent a lot of time thinking about this and observing that are there a lot of people who don't like their health insurance? Sure. Are there a lot of people who wish they paid less in premiums or co-pays or deductible? Yeah, there are. But there are people who are generally okay with it and who would look at government-run healthcare as, as a bit of a gamble. They, you know, people are naturally small C conservative. They are wary about big sweeping changes. And you know, look, you may hate dealing with a health insurance company, but those who've dealt with Medicaid and Medicare say, hey, you know what? There can be every bit as much paperwork and bureaucracy and complicated statements and, and all that stuff. So, you know, rather than telling all of America, we're gonna make you do something. Which, by the way, which is one of the whole reasons Barack Obama was running around the country saying, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your plan. People didn't want to change the things that they liked. So, yeah, I, th- I think everything in that article is, is pretty like they are going to raise the standards for the third debate. Delaney does not look like he's going to do it. I don't you know. He's, he's spent a lot of time in Iowa and New Hampshire and all those early primary states. There's no indication that he's catching fire or, or gaining ground or anything like that. Look, when you're a l- little-known congressman from Maryland, you, you really need a bigger platform before you know, and bigger reputation people to get to know you before you run for president. I'm sorry. 
The guy was an entrepreneur. He does speak about himself as being a businessman, a guy who knows how to create jobs. He's got a little bit of that Mike Bloomberg-y, uh, I'm left of center, but I don't hate uh, businesses in the private sector vibe to him. But uh, I mean, it's not like you and I are going to you know, be crying in our beer if he ends up uh, leaving the race. Again, it, this assumes we notice it, but in the end, it does feel kind of weird that a guy who you know has a, a dollop or two of common sense might be among those who end up leaving the race first. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Chris Dodd, who obviously many more people knew who he was. He had been in the Senate for, I think, 28 years when he ran for president in 2008, literally moved his family to Iowa to campaign around the clock because he put his, all his eggs in the Iowa basket. Come caucus day, 0%. So just yeah, because I you mean, try really hard doesn't mean you're going to get anywhere. The, the really amazing thing is I imagine the guy who sold uh, Dodd his house didn't even vote for him. <laughs> what has Chris Dodd ever done to make me vote for him? Eh, he spent a lot on a house. but uh, no, no, sorry. I, I guess the idea is that everybody in Iowa, you know, Chris Dodd said, you know, I love this state so much I live here. And everyone else in Iowa said, yeah, so do I. Now he decides what our movies are rated. Well done, Chris Dodd. Okay, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And the good news for uh, John Delaney is is that he is going to be in the second round of the debates on CNN, uh, July 30th and 31st. And now we know, thanks to the high live drama on CNN last night, exactly who's going to be debating on each of those two nights and where they'll be standing on stage. And in true fine CNN tradition, they amped this up as much as they possibly could. Wolf Blitzer, of course, the ringmaster of this. But we're going to start with Brianna Keeler explaining the drawing process and Wolf Blitzer being really excited about it. We all have name cards like these ones, one for each candidate in our group. We have the same number of date cards, half for the first night, July 30th, half for the second night, July 31st. So we'll be putting the candidate cards into one box titled presidential candidates. We'll put the date cards in this other box titled debate night, and then randomly we'll draw a name and a date to determine which night each candidate will appear. And Wolf, you will be keeping tabs on all of the results, and they'll be constantly updated on the bottom of the screen as well. And just minutes from now, Brianna, we're all going to learn the final debate lineups for both nights at the same time as the candidates. Jim, I can't wait any longer, but we did have to wait. They did it in three different rounds. They started with the also-rans and split them up 50-50. Then the people doing a little bit better. And then they had the final draw, which had the people polling the best, which are Biden, Harris, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders. And here's Blitzer getting ready for that. All right, Anderson, uh, we're down to the final draw. We've been grouping the candidates based on recent polling. Uh, These are some of the biggest names in the Democratic race. Joe Biden. Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren are moments away from finding out when they will be debating. And this round will go a long way in determining the dynamics of the two debates. we got to wait again. Stand by, everybody. And then they finally had the draw, and Blitzer was still excited because there was one thing left. There's one more piece of this puzzle that still has to be decided. Coming up, we're going to reveal how the candidates will be positioned on stage each night. Jim, I can't handle the excitement anymore. This is too amazing. <laughs> uh, so first of all, let's observe that we love, or at least I love, uh, I, I like Wolf Blitzer. Uh, I do believe that he always gets on, st- uh, stands on the stage as if he's just run a marathon or something. Like he's always very little bit short of breath. You want to hand the guy a brown paper bag to breathe into or something. It always seems kind of excited. And, uh, you know, he's always telling people to stand by. This was weird because this was like, again, all they're deciding is who's on what night. 
they, you know, they got, there's some interest in it. I actually think they did it pretty good. You got Harris versus Biden, the rematch on the second night. We've joked about how this needs to be like an NCAA tournament bracket with a play-in <laughs> round and all that stuff. That's one step short of how they did this because you basically have Beto O'Rourke and the Pete Buttigieg in the wannabe JFK bracket, right? I mean, they're basically those two guys. You've got Warren and Sanders in the, you know, out-and-out socialist bracket. Um, I think Marianne Williamson belongs in her own bracket, <laughs> kind of off in space somewhere. And I'm, I'm just, I'm fairly certain, because there was such a weird sports NBA lottery, uh, uh, draft lottery selection style. It was really weird. I'm fairly certain at one point I heard Mel Kiper Jr. saying that uh, Corey Booker is a tight end out of Stanford. He's got great hands. Great mobility, great agility. Questions about he didn't perform well at the combine, apparently, was there. <laughs> um, it really is bizarre. My suspicion is that if this, you know, I'd love to see how the ratings went. If people really tuned in to see who was going to be at which night of the debate, which is, you know, of curiosity to us political junkies and all that stuff, but really doesn't seem that kind of huge. My suspicion is they will do something like the NBA draft lottery where they have the big thing of balls and they spin it around and all that kind of stuff. My understanding is... This is kind of like the old basketball playoff tournament. Um, so just you recognize you know, that was when the Milwaukee Beers had to beat Indianapolis to advance to Charlotte, which would reduce the magic number to three. But if the Beers beat Detroit and Denver beats Atlanta in the American Southwestern Division East Northern, then Milwaukee goes to the Denslow Cup unless Baltimore can upset Buffalo and Charlotte ties Toronto. Because then Oakland would play L.A. and Pittsburgh in a blind choice round robin. And if no clear, clear winner emerges from all this, a two-man sack race will be held on consecutive Sundays until a champion can be crowned. That's going to be so sad when this field narrows with the higher criteria come September because the high drama for the lineups and who debates on which night, we're just going to all be down to podium position. Jim, the, the drama just won't be quite as intense, and we really need to appreciate this while we have it. Yeah, I mean, when they said there were three, you know, there were three tiers, there was, you know, look, the tier of the the candidates who really might have a chance of winning. Uh, The second tier is candidates who we thought might have had a chance and who clearly don't. And then there, as you and I I like to call the asterisks, um, the ones who you're really not that interested in watching, unless you want to count Marianne Williamson out of sheer entertainment value. Um, and apparently she was like in sec- you know, she was at 2% and a whole bunch of bigger names in New Hampshire were at 1% this week. So look out, America. I think Mary Ann Williamson is making, is going to make it deep into the playoff run here. Hey, harnessing love is popular in New Hampshire, apparently. And uh, we'll see if she can make any more ground here. Wow. Mary Ann Williamson. That'd be amazing if she made it to September. She won't, but that would still be amazing. So Wolf Blitzer. Calm down. Rest up. You got a couple of weeks before this actually happens. I know we'll be standing by. He starts every day with breaking news. It could be the Dow's up 50. It could be Trump tweeted something. It doesn't matter. The start of his show every day is hyperventilation on some level. But uh, good for Wolf. He loves what he does. Greg, stand by. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Have a great weekend, everyone. If you're in the D.C. area, please try to stay cool. And we'll see you again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.